for visitors and for cubbies who are here who wouldn't normally be in the service. Uh, if you followed the plots so far, those who have been here, uh, they will have uh, found that in the previous chapter, Paul's looking at, well, he says, really jumps straight into it, but the background to it is clearly there are places in Scripture where God says, don't do this. And where Scripture says, don't do something, we don't do it. In other places, God says, do do this. And where Scripture tells us to do it, we do it. But in between those two, of course, there are thousands and thousands of issues where Scripture neither says, don't do them, nor says, do do them. And somehow, we have to decide whether or not we do them. Um, Grey areas, if we call them that. Uh, Areas where somehow, I as a Christian, have got to decide, what is the right thing for me to do? And what we saw last time in chapter 8 was that our guide is to be our conscience where we're Christians. What we've first got to do is be sure that Scripture doesn't say one way or the other, do or don't do it, but provided Scripture is silent on it, then we apply the principles of Scripture and if we end up with that with, well, it's an okay thing to do um, or not, we're guided by our conscience, by our conscience as the Holy Spirit quickens it, quickens it and shapes it and directs us through it. And if our conscience tells us that we shouldn't do it, then we don't do it. Whatever others are doing, whatever we see other Christians doing, even if they're Christians we look up to, even if they're Christians we greatly respect, if my own conscience tells me no, then for me it is wrong to do it and I do not do it. If my conscience tells me it's fine for me to do it, before I rush off to say, that's great, now I can enjoy doing it, in chapter 8 we're told we've first got to stop and consider one thing. If I do it, how is that going to affect other Christians? Are they going to be tempted to copy me? Are they going to be tempted to, are they going to be confused by it? Are they, are they going to start doubting things, start uh, being confused because I've done something that in their mind is wrong? And if there's any chance that they'll copy me or they'll be confused by it or damaged by it, then God says, I don't do it. I, I restrain my own freedom in Christ to do that thing for the sake of my brother or sister for whom Christ died. Their spiritual well-being is far more important than me enjoying myself in this particular area. And um, at the close of chapter 8, particularly verse 12, when you sin against your brothers in this way, if you go ahead and do it, knowing that it might damage a brother or sister in Christ, Paul writes, when you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. And that's where we finish at the end of last time in chapter 8. As you go into chapter 9, you might think, and of course there are commentators that would argue like this, that Paul's gone off on a totally different subject. Um, There are those who would suggest that Paul at this point just loses track of where he's going with this and starts talking about something, his thoughts of rights and his, his thinking about what you can do and don't do just spurs him to start writing about what he's given up. And then it's not until the middle of chapter 10 that he remembers he hasn't really finished off what he was talking about back in chapter 8 and he goes back to it. Um, how you can reason like that I don't understand I I hope we will see very clearly that chapter 9 has got an awful lot to do with this subject and more than that um, the Holy Spirit directs scripture and the Holy Spirit doesn't direct scripture to get confused Uh, the Holy Spirit intends chapter 9 to follow chapter 8 there's a reason for it and I hope we can see that as we look into this subject let me just give you a very trivial example of the sort of thing I'm talking about um, when I, I, I was preaching some years back up here um, Sunday mornings in the summer on a day like this I, I would go home after the, the service 
and while I was waiting Sue very graciously prepared Sunday dinner for me and uh, that slot in between there may be a half hour gap or something one of the things I'd love to do was just get out the lawnmower and mow it up and down the lawn it was just such a mind relaxing stress removing thing to do you know you can believe it or not you can actually come out from preaching sometimes quite stressful and quite um, <coughs> adrenaline pumping and it was just a lovely way to relax before I sat down to eat my meal and then one day I heard an elderly lady I was talking to She's at home with the Lord now, but at that time she was still living on this planet. And uh, I was talking to her on one occasion and she said, um, about uh, a vicar she'd once known, she said, I don't know if he was a Christian actually, because I once saw him cutting his hedge on a Sunday. And I thought, wow, what do I do? To me, it's just relieving stress. It was just winding down after a service. To her, it was questioning whether or not the person is actually saved. So I have to curtail my freedom to do that for her sake, don't I? That's what Paul's saying there. You know, and and that's what we have to examine in everything we do as Christians. I find that incredibly exciting. I find that a wonderful dynamic dimension to Christianity. But it's about self-sacrifice, isn't it? It's about not doing things that we enjoy doing. And so as we go into chapter 9, Paul is trying to underline, look, he says, yes, I'm calling upon you to give things up, but just look at what I've given up for your sakes. And not even in a grey area. And that's what the whole of these verses we've been reading that we're going to look at this morning about. Before you start saying, why should I give anything up for the sake of a brother or sister in Christ just because they are weak in their faith? Paul says, just look at what I've given up for your sakes. And since it's including scriptures for our sakes as well, or we wouldn't have chapters like this to study. I've obviously met many, many Christians in my lifetime. Many Christians that I've met fall into one of two categories. Some Christians are very, very ready to talk about what they've done for the Lord. They have no problem with it at all. They're overflowing with it. As soon as you meet them, they start telling you what they've done for the Lord. The only problem is, very often, they do it in a very boastful and proud way. And that's wrong, that's sinful. I've met many other Christians in my lifetime who would rather drop dead than tell you about what they've done for the Lord. Their humility is such that they can't possibly ever talk to someone else about what they've done. Now, the only problem with that is that they actually deny themselves a great amount of material that they could use to back up what scripture teaches if they used it in the right way. Paul here is able to talk about what he's done for the Lord. But he's not boasting about it, he's not doing it in in the wrong way, he's doing it in the right way to back up the teaching that he's giving. And, And he really wants to drive home what he's given up so that they can understand what he's, the context in which he's asking them to give things up. He didn't forgo these rights in order to boast about it. He forgave them for the sake of the gospel. And so now what he's saying in effect is not, look at what I've given up, but you know what I've given up, can you understand why? That's his point. Do you grasp why? Because then you'll understand why I'm telling you you need to give things up as well says Paul my friend can I ask you can you in all clear conscience if you're a Christian 
turn to others who you're trying to explain the teaching of scripture and say to them look if you want to understand this can you see how I've done it in my life can you do that we should be able to if we're Christians if you're teaching in Sunday school if you're teaching ladies meetings if you're preaching if you're just sharing the gospel with, with someone whatever it might be are you able to say to them with a clear conscience look if you want to understand what I'm saying here can, can you see how I've done it in my life not boastfully, not proudly but just, just to give them a practical demonstration of what it is you're asking them to do Paul could I want to see first Paul's unquestionable qualification. It's there in those first two verses. Uh, Inevitably, if you're going to tell somebody they can't do what they want to do, one of the first things they're going to say is, what right have you got to say that to me? Isn't it? Isn't that how we immediately respond when someone says you shouldn't be doing that? Who are you to talk? Who are you to say that to me? And Paul sort of preempts that objection by asking four rhetorical questions. You know what rhetorical questions are? Youngsters, you know what rhetorical questions are? I remember Stuart Briscoe talking about when he started doing coffee bar evangelism up in um, Cumbria. It's in the news at the moment, isn't it? But he said when he started doing coffee bar evangelism up there, he took along these newly converted youngsters uh, to the local church. He said, typical evangelical church, the back rows were, back pews were crowded, the front pews were all empty. So they all went and sat down on the, right down near the front. He said there'd never been anything, any place like this before in their lives except the cinema. So they did what they'd have done in the cinema. They put their feet up on the sheets in front. They got their combs out and started combing their hair. And no one had talked to them about a holy hush. They just talked in their normal voices. And he said, we got into the service. To their untold delight, a plate was passed along with loads of money on, without any explanation at all. So he said they helped themselves to what they fancied and passed the plate on. So then they got to the sermon and he said it was one of those sermons filled with rhetorical questions so the preacher says and I was saying to him and I said I ask you what would you have said he should never have asked <laughs> you know rhetorical questions are not questions you ask to get answers back are they they're questions you ask to promote a line of thought in the person's mind The questions you ask to challenge somebody by the implicit answer that's there in the question. And that's what Paul does here. Here's questions one. Am I not free? Paul is commanding that we curtail our own freedom in Christ for the sake of our weaker brothers and sisters. We might logically think that if we end up doing that, we're going to end up saying, I can't do that, I mustn't do that, I mustn't do that, I mustn't do that. And I'll end up with no freedom at all in Christ. And Christ died for our freedom. Paul writes in Galatians 5.1 It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So surely you reason if I end up taking into account what that person thinks and what that one thinks and that one thinks and how I might damage them I'm going to end up doing nothing. I'll have such a miserable Christian existence. And Paul turns around and says You reckon? Have a look at me. Am I not free? Paul enjoyed his freedom in Christ so much it meant everything to him. He revelled in it. And he says, I've curtailed my freedoms in Christ but it hasn't meant that I haven't got any freedom it just means I've got right bounds to enjoy my freedom in. He says, I'm free, aren't I? Question number two. Am I not an apostle? One who's been personally commissioned by Jesus Christ to the work that he's doing. Paul says, am I not an apostle? I suggest to you there's perhaps two thoughts behind Paul in this. The first one is this, I have got apostolic authority to tell you to do this. 
You know, before you say, who am I to give you this instruction, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. That gives me the authority to say it. But I think there's a second point behind it as well. He's about to tell them all that he's given up. And he says, look, just think about this for a moment. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have got more rights than any of you. Jesus Christ commissioned me. Jesus Christ has put me in authority over you. Jesus Christ has given me the authority to speak on his behalf and yet I have totally denied my rights. So before you start saying why should I curtail my rights you're not apostles. If I as an apostle have done all this aren't you called to do at least as much? And I'm not even calling you to do as much. Question three, have I not seen the Lord? Do you know, I think there were some people in the church there, it's it's evident as you read the letter, isn't it? Some people there in the church that had some, a real spiritual in with the Lord. Do you know people like that? You know, that the Lord always tells them something personal and something special. The the Lord said to me, and they they go around all day, don't they? they? You know, the Lord said this to me. I remember Stuart Briscoe on another occasion saying about someone would come up in his church and they'd always say, you know, the, the Lord has told me, and then would always follow it by, what do you think? He said, which always confused me because I wasn't sure why they wanted to know what I thought if the Lord had told them. But he said, I tried various answers. I tried, um, well, if the Lord said it, I totally disagree. He said, that didn't work. I said, um, well, if, if, if the Lord said it, why are you asking me? That didn't work. He said, whatever response I gave, he didn't seem to answer them because they had this, this special in with the Lord. And there were people like that in the church at Corinth and they're setting themselves up. They're not submitting to God's word They're not submitting to apostolic authority because they're saying in effect, but the Lord has told me, so I'm above that, I'm exempt from that. And in response to that, Paul says, I've seen the Lord. Before you start telling me about what the Lord said to you, Jesus Christ has appeared to me. I've actually personally seen him in a unique situation. So I've got authority to say what I'm saying if you're going to start throwing around who's best qualified to do it. And fourthly, are you not the result of my work in the Lord? He says, well, others might reject what I'm saying, but how can you, when it was through me that you were saved? I'm the one who brought you the truth. I'm the one who shared the gospel with you. I'm the one who who discipled you. I'm I'm the one who grew you. If others are going to reject what I'm saying, surely you can't, especially when I come to an area like this. Now, why has Paul gone through all of this? Four questions, and we've just spent a good five minutes looking at it. Why all that effort before he says what it is he's going to say? Because it is so important. It's so important. We are talking about I, as a Christian, doing something that I have a freedom to do that causes a brother or sister to sin. And Paul says that is a horrific scenario. Isn't it? An absolutely horrific scenario. That I could do something in my freedom in the Lord because I want to do it, aware that by my doing it, someone else is very liable to copy me and sin. So Paul says this is such a big, important issue that I'm only going to spend a couple of chapters on it but I'm going to underline before I go any further my standing and my rights 
And now I'm going to tell you how I didn't use them for the sake of others. So look at his undeniable rights, verses 3 to 14. First thing I want us to see is this. These aren't grey areas. This isn't about mowing your lawn on a Sunday or, you know, whether or not that particular artist is the right one to listen to in music or whether or not that's the right film to go to or watch. And some are very black and white. You can say, definitely, I shouldn't be watching that one. Others, but in between, we admit there are some that some Christians would say that's okay and some Christians would say, no, for me it's not. But this isn't areas like this. What's the area that Paul's concerned with here? One area only. I didn't receive a penny for working full time amongst you preaching the gospel. He did receive gifts from churches, but it seems that he never received gifts when he was actually there doing the work there. If afterwards when he travelled on they wanted to support him, that was fine. But when he was there with them, he wouldn't take money from them for what he was doing. We know from Acts chapter 18 how it worked. This is there when he was there in Corinth. 18 verse 4, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he spent the Sabbath in the synagogue evangelising there. Next verse, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. That was his full-time work, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And you get down to verse 11, so Paul stayed there a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Maybe in total two years in that place, preaching and teaching. And how did he support himself? Did he make an appeal every so often? Did he pass around an offertory bag? Did he point out to them that he was, didn't have any food today? Could he come and share a meal with someone? No, he didn't. What did he do? Chapter 18, verse 3. Because he was a tent maker, he stayed and worked with Priscilla and Aquila. He stayed and worked with them because he was a tent maker. So he subsidised himself. He worked in any spare minute he had, possibly in the middle of the night, I don't know, doing work with his own hands in order that he could eat and clothe himself while he was there in that place in order that he could share the gospel with them and grow them in Jesus Christ. Now you might not think that's a very big deal. Listen to this. Verse 4. He never claimed a right even to be given a drink or food. What did we read there, verse 4? Don't we have a right to food and drink? Never even said to them, would somebody please bring me down some lunch today because I haven't got any food. Verse 5. They didn't have to support a pastor's wife while he was there with them, or an evangelist's wife, as many of the other preachers expected to have done for them. You would invite them to come and obviously they bring their wife with them. And you would expect to support and put up both of them, as we would as a church. Paul says, I never laid that on you. I never had a wife to bring along with me and say, I expect you to support both of us while we're here. Verse 6, he had to do a secular job. He and Barnabas, in order to support themselves. Now let's just stop here for a minute, before we just start applauding Paul and saying, well done Paul. Or saying, well, that was Paul's choice. His whole point in saying this is, look, there's a relevance to you. There's an application of this to you. What I've been talking about is how you now need to curtail your freedom. How you need to consider others. How you need to think about how what you're doing is going to affect them and make allowances for them. 
even as I have done all of this for you. So he draws on secular equivalents. You go down to verse 7. What does he say there? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Now we haven't got any soldiers here this morning but we have got a number of people in the forces. Can I ask you a simple question? If you were not paid a penny by anyone for going and working at Milton Hall or Lake and East, wherever it is and serving in the forces for the next 20 years or whatever it is would you be doing it? I mean of course you wouldn't that's Paul's point but he says but I'm a soldier for Christ so I have a right to be paid haven't I? He says, look, if, 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 if someone plants a vineyard, they expect to be paid for that. And part of the way they were normally paid was that they, they got a share of the grapes that the vineyard produced. That, that's expected. But he says, I've planted a spiritual vineyard here. Aren't I entitled to something back from that? He says, look, a shepherd, if a shepherd's looking after his flocks out there on the hill, he's entitled to take drink from the sheep or the goats. He says, I'm a shepherd to you. Aren't I entitled to anything back for that? And so having drawn the sort of looked at the secular equivalents, if you like, he then looks at the scriptures teaching and he goes to the Old Testament and he says, what does the Old Testament teach? Well, he quotes from Deuteronomy 25.4, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading on the grain. One of the ways they used to uh, get the, 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 the kernel out of the grain they, they'd have their ox and they'd have a big uh, pole thing behind it with, with metal things on it and they'd lay all the, the, the grain out in rows and the, and the ox would walk over it dragging this thing across it and it would crush it and, it and it would rake it and one of the rules was that God gave was that you mustn't muzzle the ox it's got to be allowed to eat some of that while it's doing it now says Paul that rule wasn't given because God particularly loves oxen it was given because God wants to teach us something and what he wants to teach us is about his nature and about how we're to reflect it not just in how we treat oxen but far more how we treat human beings and if God has made that allowance for an ox how much more so is his point should they support a human who is working for them And then he brings it to New Testament teaching. He brings it to what Jesus Christ himself has taught. What does he say? Verse, uh, oh, first of all, sorry, Old Testament, verse 13. Don't you know those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar get a share in what's sacrificed at the altar. That's Old Testament law. And then he brings it to New Testament. And what do we read? In the same way, verse 14, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And the word there that is translated command, it's diatasso, it's literally prescribed or initiated. Jesus Christ brought this into being, this rule. And I guess he's thinking back to places like where Jesus said, take no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the labourer deserves his food. Another occasion he said remain in the same house eating and drinking what they provide for the labourer deserves his wages. So Jesus has provided. So Paul says wherever you look if you look at the secular equivalent if you look at the Old Testament law if you look at New Testament teaching wherever you look I should have been paid for my ministry amongst you. 
and I denied all of that I chose not to take it which brings us to our last point his universal self-denial it's not that he said I'll take the minimum I can it's not that he said I won't take any luxuries it's not that he said well I'll fit in a little work when I can to help meet the bill he said I've refused it all every penny of it in order that the gospel will just be seen and heard in all of its radiant beauty that's his concern isn't it I think we can best understand these last verses verses 15 to 18 by seeing the contrast between Paul and the philosophers and the false teachers of his day all around Corinth there were people who were prepared to stand up and preach and they were doing it for what they could get out of it they would charge people to hear them speak they would take up money from, from the crowd that was there they would become more and more popular and get bigger and bigger crowds and when the crowds start to diminish they give up and go somewhere else that was their life false teachers were coming up in the church that were speaking and, and preaching but for material gain and Paul said when I came to you I wanted you to see the difference I didn't want you to confuse the two I, did, I wanted you to see the gospel for what the gospel was so I sacrificed everything in order that my life would show the difference between what I'm preaching and what they're preaching he said this is my reward that, that my life reflects the beauty of this gospel message that I'm preaching and when you look at me you can see what it means to, to be touched by God and he says that's the only reward I want to give this free of charge he says if you want to know who you believe whether you believe me or them just, just look at what we're getting out of it they're getting so much out of it I'm getting nothing now which one do you think is telling you the truth which one do you think is handling the word of God rightly them or me now he says I've done all of that for your sakes so what I'm asking you to do in comparison is a very little thing just in those grey areas just in those areas where the Bible doesn't say definitely no or definitely yes but those areas where you've got the freedom to be led by your conscience if you think that you doing something is going to damage another Christian why are you going to do it? why can't you restrain that freedom in Christ for their sake is that too much to ask says Paul when I've given up all of this so that you could be saved in the first place and we could look at a far greater sacrifice couldn't we look what Jesus Christ gave up that we might be saved he denied himself every right he who had the worship of angels for eternity came onto this planet and got down on his hands and knees and washed the feet of the very creatures he had created and in his divine nature was still sustaining even while he did it. He hangs there on a cross, crucified, in absolute agony, under the wrath of a holy God being poured out on him and cried, Father forgive them because they don't know what they do. And he drank that cup to the very bitter dregs so that he could cry out it is finished 
in order that you and I, if you're a Christian, might stand here today in the freedom of Christ. He gave up everything for you and I. What is it that we're not prepared to give up for the sake of a brother or sister in Christ? My friend, are you saved this morning? You'll never make sense of this sort of teaching until you are. How can you? It goes against everything the world proclaims. The world doesn't tell us to give things up for others. The world tells us to take everything. Me, 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 me. That's the world's cry, isn't it? But come to the Lord. Confess your sin. Recognise that before our holy God you are unclean in your thinking, in your life, in your actions, in your words. You've done so much that displeases and angers a holy God. Things you've thought, things you've said, the way you haven't worshipped him as he deserves to be worshipped. Come to him, confess that, turn in faith to what Jesus Christ has done to save you. And then it starts to make sense. And if you've done that, this is one of the most exciting, dynamic areas of Christian living I know of. That every day we face this challenge, how am I going to live out this day in such a way that I glorify God and that I encourage and help my brothers and sisters in Christ? How am I going to win today? How am I at the end of this day going to have defeated Satan in my life with God's help? Or at the end of this day, is he going to be able to come before the Lord and say, look at that person there. I thought you said they were one of yours. Look what they've just done to that brother or sister. Would you want that said of you? I pray it's never said of me. I fear sometimes it is. Let's just pray.